Section 16 of Three Science Fiction Novellas by Lee Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4 of Shadrach, The Last. He had to drag Jen. Her face had gone utterly blank. In the next minute he realized that they would never reach the rocks, and that there was no chance, none at all. Back from the winged whirl that was driving the humans, two of the hawks came darting at them. Trevor swung Jan behind him and hoped fiercely he could get another neck between his hands before they pulled him down. The dark shadows flashed down. He could see the sunstones glittering in their heads. They struck straight at him. But at the last split second they swerved away. Trevor waited. They came back again, very fast, but this time it was at Jen they struck, and not at him. He got her behind him again in time, and once more the hawks checked their strike. The truth dawned on Trevor. The hawks were deliberately refraining from hurting him. Whoever gives them their orders, the Korans or that other, doesn't want me hurt. He caught up Jen in his arms and started to run again toward the rocks. Instantly the hawk struck at Jen. He could not swing her clear in time. Blood ran from the long claw marks left in her smooth, tanned shoulders. Jen cried out. Trevor hesitated. He tried again for the rocks, and Jen moaned as a swift scaly head snapped at her neck. So that's it, Trevor thought furiously. I'm not going to be hurt, but they can drive me through Jen. And they could, too. He would never get Jan to the concealment of the rocks alive, with those two wide-winged shadows tearing at her. He had to go the way they wanted, or they would leave her as they had left Hugh. All right, Trevor yelled savagely at the circling demons. Let her alone. I'll go where you want. He turned, still carrying Jan, plodding after the other slaves who were being herded down the canyon. All that day the hawks drove the humans down the watercourse, around the shoulder of basalt and out onto the naked sun-seared lava bed. Some of them dropped and lay where they were, and no effort of the hawks could move them on again. Much of the time Trevor carried Jen. Part of the time he dragged her. For long periods he had no idea what he did. He was in a daze in which only his hatred was still vivid when he felt Jen pulled away from him. He struggled and was held, and he looked up to see a ring of mounted men around him. Korans with their crested beasts, the sunstones glittering in their brows. They looked down at Trevor, curious, speculative, hostile, their otherwise undistinguished human faces made strangely evil and otherworldly by the winking stones. "'You come with us to the city,' one of them said curtly to Trevor. "'That woman goes with the other slaves.' Trevor glared up at him. "'Why me, to the city?' The Koran raised his riding whip threateningly. "'You'll do as you're ordered. Mount.' Trevor saw that a slave had brought a saddle beast to him and was holding it, not looking either at him or the Korans. "'All right,' he said. "'I'll go with you.' He mounted and sat waiting, his eyes bright with the hatred that burned in him, bright as blown coals. They formed a circle around him and the leader gave a word. 
they galloped off toward the distant city. Trevor must have dozed as he rode, for suddenly it was sunset, and they were approaching the city. Seeing it as he had before, far off and with nothing to measure it against but the overtopping Titan peaks, it had seemed no more than a city built of rock. Now he was close to it. Black shadows lay on it, and on the valley, but halfway up the opposite mountain wall the light still blazed, reflected downward on the shallow sky, so that everything seemed to float in some curious dimension between night and day. Trevor stared, shut his eyes, and stared again. The size was wrong. He looked quickly at the Corans, with the eerie feeling that he might have shrunk to child size as he slept. But they had not changed, at least, relative to himself. He turned back to the city, trying to force it into perspective. It rose up starkly from the level plain. There was no gradual guttering out into suburbs, no softening down to garden villas or rows of cottages. It leapt up like a cliff and began, solemn, massive, squat, and ugly. The buildings were square, set stiffly along a square front. They were not tall. Most of them were only one story high. And yet Trevor felt dwarfed by them, as he had never felt dwarfed by the mightiest of Earth's skyscrapers. It was an unnatural feeling, and one that made him curiously afraid. There were no walls or gateways, no roads leading in. One minute the beasts padded on the grass of the open plain. The next, their claws were clicking on a stone pave and the buildings closed them in, hulking, graceless, looking sullen and forlorn in the shadowed light. There was no sound around them anywhere, no gleaming lamps in the black embrasures of the cavernous doors. The last furious glare of the hidden sun seeped down from the high peaks and stained their upper walls, and they were old, half as old, Trevor thought, as the peaks themselves. It was the window embrasures, the doors, and the steps that led up to them that made Trevor understand suddenly what was wrong. And the latent fear that had been in him sprang to full growth. The city and the buildings in it, the steps and the doors and the height of the windows were perfectly in proportion, perfectly normal, if the people who lived there were twenty feet high. He turned to the Korans. You never built this place. Who built it? The one called Galt, who was nearest him, snarled, Quiet, slave. Trevor looked at him and at the other Korans. Something about their faces and the way they rode along the darkening empty street told him they too were afraid. He said, You, the Korans, the lordly demigods who ride about and send your hawks to hunt and slay, you're more afraid of your master than the slaves are of you. They turned toward him pallid faces that burned with hatred. He remembered how that other had gripped his brain back in the canyon. He remembered how it had felt. He understood many things now. He asked, How does it feel to be enslaved, Corins? Not just enslaved in body, but in mind and soul. Gull turned like a striking snake, but the blow never fell. The upraised hand with heavy whip suddenly checked, 
and then sank down again. Only the eyes of the coron glowed with a baleful helplessness under the winking sunstone. Trevor laughed without humor. It wants me alive. I guess I'm safe then. I guess I could tell you what I think of you. You're still convicts, aren't you? After three hundred years, no wonder you hate the slaves. Not the same convicts, of course. The sunstones didn't give longevity. Trevor knew how the Korans propagated, stealing women from among the slaves, keeping the male children and killing the female. He laughed again. It isn't such a good life after all, is it, being a Koran? Even hunting and killing can't take the taste out of your mouths. No wonder you hate the others. They're enslaved, all right, but they're not owned. They would have liked to kill him, but they could not. They were forbidden. Trevor looked at them in the last pale flicker of the afterglow. The jewels and the splendid harness, the bridles of the beasts heavy with gold, the weapons, they looked foolish now, like paper crowns and glass beads that children deck themselves with when they pretend to be kings. These were not lords and masters. These were only little men and slaves. And the sunstones were a badge of shame. The cavalcade passed on. Empty streets, empty houses with windows too high for human eyes to look through and steps too tall for human legs to climb. Full dark and the first stunning crash of thunder, the first blaze of lightning between the cliffs. The mounts were hurrying now, almost galloping to beat the lightning and the scalding rain. They were in a great square, Around it was a stiff rectangle of houses, and these were lighted with torchlight, and in the monstrous doorways here and there a little figure stood, a Corin watching. In the exact center of the square was a flat, low structure of stone, having no windows and but a single door. They reined the beast before the lightless entrance. "'Get down,' said Gall to Trevor." A livid reddish flare in the sky showed Trevor the Coran's face, and it was smiling, as a wolf smiles before the kill. Then the thunder came, the downpour of rain, and he was thrust bodily into the doorway. He stumbled over worn flagging in the utter dark, but the Corans moved sure-footedly as cats. He knew they had been here many times before, and he knew that they hated it. He could feel the hate and the fear bristling out from the bodies that were close to his, smell them in the close hot air. They didn't want to be here, but they had to. They were bidden. He would have fallen head foremost down the sudden flight of steps if someone had not caught his arm. They were huge steps. They were forced to go down them as small children do, lowering themselves bodily from tread to tread. A furnace blast of air came up the well, but in spite of the heat, Trevor felt cold. He could feel how the hard stone of the stairs had been worn into deep hollows by the passing feet. Whose feet, and going where? A sulfurous glow began to creep up through the darkness. They went down what seemed a very long way. The glow brightened, so that Trevor could once more make out the faces of the Corans. The heat was overpowering, but still there was a coldness around Trevor's heart. The steps ended in a long, low hall, 
so long that the farther end of it was lost in vaporous shadow. Trevor thought that it must have been squared out of a natural cavern, for here and there in the rocky floor small fumaroles burned and bubbled, giving off the murky light and a reek of brimstone. Along both sides of the hall were rows of statues seated in stone chairs. Trevor stared at them, with the skin crawling up and down his back. Statues of men and women, or rather, of creatures manlike and womanlike, sitting solemn and naked, their hands folded in their laps, their eyes, fashioned of dull, reddish stone, looking straight ahead, their features even and composed, with a strange sad patience clinging to the stony furrows around mouth and cheek. Statues that would be perhaps twenty feet tall if they were standing, carved by a master's chisel out of a pale substance that looked like alabaster. Galt caught his arm. Oh no, you won't run away. You were laughing, remember? Come on, I want to see you laugh some more. They forced him along between the rows of statues. Quiet statues, with a curiously ghostly look of thoughtfulness, of thoughts and feelings long vanished, but once there, different from those of humans, perhaps, but quite as strong. No two of them were alike, in face or body. Trevor noted among them things seldom seen in statues, a maimed limb, a deformity, or a completely nondescript face that would offer neither beauty nor ugliness for an artist to enlarge upon. Also, they seemed all to be old, though he could have not said why he thought so. There were other halls opening off this main one. How far they went he had no means of guessing, but he could see that in them were other shadowy rows of seated figures. Statues, endless numbers of statues, down here in the darkness underneath the city. He stopped, bracing himself against his captors, gripping the hot rock with his bare feet. This is a catacomb, he said. Those aren't statues, they're bodies, dead things sitting up. Come on, said Galt, come on and laugh. They took him, and there were too many to fight. Trevor knew that it was not them he had to fight. Something was waiting for him down in that catacomb. It had had his mind once. It would... They were approaching the end of the long hall. The sickly light from the fumaroles showed the last of the lines of seated figures. Had they died there like that, sitting up, or had they been brought here afterward? The rows on each side ended evenly, the last chairs exactly opposite each other. But against the blank end wall was a solitary seat of stone, facing down the full gloomy length of the hall, and on it sat a man-like shape of alabaster, very still, the stony hands folded rigidly upon the stony thighs. A figure no different from the others, except except that the eyes were still alive. The corns dropped back a little, all but galt. He stayed beside Trevor, his head bent, his mouth sullen and nervous, not looking up at all. And Trevor stared into the remote and somber eyes that were like two pieces of carnelian in that pale alabaster face, and yet were living, sentient, full of a deep and alien sorrow. It was very silent in the catacomb, 
The dreadful eyes studied Trevor, and for just a moment his hatred was tempered by a strange pity as he thought what it must be like for the brain, the intelligence behind those eyes, already entombed, and knowing it. A long living and a long dying, the blessing and the curse of my people. The words were soundless, spoken inside his brain. Trevor started violently. Almost he turned to flee, remembering the torture of that moment in the canyon, and then he found that while he had been staring, a force as gentle and stealthy as the gliding of a shadow had already invaded him, and he was forbidden. At this range I do not need the sunstones, murmured the silent voice within him. Once I did not need them at all, but I am old. Trevor stared at the stony thing that watched him, and then he thought of Jan, of Hugh lying dead with the dead hawk in the dust, and the strangeness left him, and his bitter passion flared again. So you hate me as well as fear me, little human? You would destroy me? There was a gentle laughter inside Trevor's mind. I have watched generations of humans die so swiftly, and yet I am here as I was before they came, waiting. You won't be here forever, snarled Trevor. These others like you died. You will. Yes, but it's a slow dying, little human. Your body chemistry is like that of the plants, the beasts, based upon carbon. Quick to grow, quick to wither away. Ours was of another sort. We were like the mountains, cousin to them, our body cells built of silicone, even as theirs, and so our flesh endures until it grows slow and stiff with age. But even then we must wait long, very long, for death. Something of the truth of that long waiting came to Trevor, and he felt a shuddering thankfulness for the frailty of human flesh. I am the last, whispered the silent voice. For a while I had companionship of minds, but the others are all gone before me, long ago. Trevor had a nightmare vision of Mercury, in some incalculable future eon, a frozen world taking its last plunge into the burned-out sun, bearing with it these endless rows of alabaster shapes, sitting in their chairs of stone, upright in the dead blackness underneath the ice. He fought back to reality, clutching his hatred as a swimmer clings to a plank, his voice raw with passion and bitterness as he cried out, "'Yes, I'll destroy you if I can. What else could you expect after what you've done?' "'Oh, no, little human, you will not destroy me. You will help me.' Trevor glared. "'Help you? Not if you kill me.' "'There will be no killing, for you would be of no use to me dead.' but alive you can serve me. That is why you were spared. Serve you? Like them? He swung to point to the waiting Korans, but the Korans were not waiting now. They were closing in on him, their hands reaching for him. Trevor struck out at them. He had a fleeting thought of how weird this battle of his with the Korans must look, as they struck and staggered on the stone paving beneath the looming watching thing of stone. But even as he had had that thought, the moment of struggle ended. An imperious command hit his brain, and black oblivion closed down upon him like the sudden clinching of a fist.
End of section 16.